Did you read about that guy that went into the cigar store in Los Angeles and uh, bought himself a cigar? And ten minutes later, it exploded. <laughs> he was smoking it there. And he just got it out of the box, you know, just ordinary cigar out of the cigar store. And to show you how the world is changing, the FBI is now investigating. Why my uncle grew up on cigars that exploded. In fact, <laughs> in fact, every time he would light a cigar, you'd see his shoulders hunch forward, Don, you know, waiting for the thing to go off. And then after it would go off, and he'd put his glasses back on and put his teeth back in, he'd just go right on smoking. <laughs> Did you read that article? Oh, we don't have that kind of news on this station. Charlie Brown had a cigar that blew up. Wouldn't it be great if we had that kind of news? Late yesterday afternoon, 1722 North Grand Concourse Boulevard, Charles W. Applebaum tore a Staten Island phone book in half. Uh, more news in just a moment, but first the weather. Oh, boy, what a rotten day it is. It's raining all over the place. Guys are yelling and hollering. And now back to the news. Fred Applerot of 2217 Eden Grove Avenue in Islip, Long Island, yesterday reported that his pair of rubber teeth were stolen from him. This pair of rubber teeth are very important to his... <laughs> How many times have you seen a good... All right, armorer, make me a sword. Not too sharp, a bit hard to draw, and of cardboard, preferably... On second thought, stick an eraser on the handle. Somehow, I always clobber the wrong guy. Make me a shield with easy-to-change insignia. I'm often a little vague as to which side I'm on, what battle I'm in. And, uh, listen, make it a trifle flimsy. Not too hard to pierce. I'm not absolutely sure that I want to win. Make the armor itself as tough as possible, but on a reverse principle. Don't worry about its saving my hide. Just fix it to give me some sort of protection, any sort of protection, from a possible enemy inside. And so, would you please give me Bye Bye Blues there on cut number one. Uh, very good. That was excellent. Bye 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 Pretty, uh, pretty uppity, uh, down here after 10, 15 at night. I'm, I'm talking about the great they out there, the audience. They're getting a little uppity. I'll tell you this. I felt, th I felt it all along. I've been getting mail lately, and I can just tell there's a little, kind of a little, uh, aggressiveness beginning to show up. Maybe they've been exposed a little too much to Martha Dean. Who knows? Maybe they've had just a little bit too much Al McCann. In fact, I'm beginning to worry that their rope is getting a little too long. So, Don, hey, Don, do you have the money button ready in there? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll cut their water off right now. Light up the 
can. You've got a good thing going. Light up with Kent for real good taste. Light up with Kent. You've got a good thing going. Good tobaccos. The Kent filter for good taste going when you light up with Kent. Light up a Kent, and you've got a good thing going. Good taste. The mild, mellow taste of Kent's vintage tobaccos, flavor blended for good taste. And the Kent filter for extra good taste. Light up a Kent, you've got a good thing going. Light up a Kent, for real good taste. Light up a Kent, you've got a good thing going. Good tobaccos. Oh, very good. Uh, that's from my vast collection of pop art. Uh, for those of you who wonder why we've got all these things on the show here, it's uh, because recently we've become more and more interested in, in the, uh, the gauche commercial as an example of a growing sort of vital American pop art medium. I think this pop art medium goes much further than Superman and Batman and all the rest of it. And if you stick around, we've got a couple of real whoopies <laughs> later on. You know, speaking of uh, real whoopies, I wonder how many of you along to... Oh, oh, it must have been three or four years ago on the show. For those of you who have been following this, this epic uh, from time to time, uh, off and on here and there, I wonder how many of you remember about three or four years ago in a moment of uh, serious facetiousness, I predicted that the day would come when uh, people would be advised to pattern their behavior themselves on great successful people of the past, like Adolf Hitler, who certainly went all the way. Uh, do you remember that? I said the day would come when, when salesmen, for example, would, 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 yes, I remember doing this, and a large number of people wrote in and said, oh, come on, Shepard, now that's terrible. You're being awful. And, and I read I read a little blurb uh, from some company that was directing its, its stuff towards salesmen. It says, you know, men, one of the reasons why so many salesmen are just not adequate, they just don't make it, is they don't know how to use their voice. They're not oratorical. They do not know how to make the words sing, how to bring those copy points out so that the sound of violins is playing behind them. In short, many men do not have stage presence. And now making available to you an LP containing some of the best work of some of the most successful men of the past, great orators, such people as Adolf Hitler. Uh, hey, I'm not kidding. This is the truth. Where guys are studying Hitler's techniques. And I thought it was funny. And I thought, well, that's the end of it. I haven't heard any more about it. Well, a sneaky little thing happened the other day. I'm sitting there, you know, reading in the in the uh, barber shop. I'm reading one of these, you know, these little tabloid-type papers that have millions of little ads along the side. You can't find the news. One of the big games in the tabloid papers, of course, is to find those little soups on of news 
between all the big Alexander ads and all the John Factory, all the ads for girdles and, and uh, pop-type cans and stuff. Until finally, way back, you found a little, little thing. says, Adam Bomb dropped on Kremlin. A sea story on page 428 uh, next to the Macy ads. And you get back, and they forgot to put it in. You know, the Macy ads came in the last minute and just wiped out all the news from the last 400 pages of paper. Well, I'm, I'm sitting there looking through one of these papers, and I, and I came across this little column which appeared as an ad. Now, just a little side column, and, uh, and it, 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 I thought was very significant at the time I read it. I gee was for crying out. Here I thought all along it was going to be men that were going to pattern themselves uh, on the order of, say, uh, somebody like uh, Genghis Khan. You know, have you ever, ever wondered why it is that you don't make it, fellas, at the office? Why don't you just stride in there with your feet wide apart, wearing a breastplate, carrying a gigantic saber, and lay about yourself there in the sales department like Genghis Khan would have done it? Or Alexander the Great, he didn't fool around. There was no, no, no yelling. I mean, listen, when he, he didn't, he didn't just talk back there by the, by the water cooler. When you challenge a guy to Indian wrestle, just as he opens his mouth to say, "Yeah, hit him in the gut, kick him in the groin, and that's it," the game is over. And uh, five minutes later, you'll find yourself out there with the good accounts. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if somebody really did try strong arm tactics in a business, though, Don? Oh, you know how everybody's such a nice guy around here at this office, and they're all sitting around being very polite at the sales meeting. Jacques Beerben is up there, and he's handling out, he's handing out the new accounts, you know, and he's assigning new agencies, and all the nice guys are sitting around there, Bob Alden and and uh, Johnny Diatolo and Marty uh, Monroe, all these nice klutzes, you know, sitting around with their big, fat grins on their face. Nobody ever says a harsh word. And they have hired this little short guy with curly hair. He's the last man on the totem pole in the sales department scene. He has not said a word. He's only been there for two days, and now he's at his first sales meeting. I can just see the scene. Can, can I have a little mood music there? Just cut to Yeah, that's, that's very good. Just cut. A little mood music. Uh, right over here. No, no, no. That's it. That's it. That's it. Turntable two. That's it. Bring it up. We have set the scene now. It's the friendly little sales meeting where all the nice guys are assembled. Jacques Beerben, one of the most civilized of men, is in charge of the sales meeting. And off to his left, we see little sneaky Bob Alden, who spends all of his life hiding under chairs and wearing his hat. Next to him is John Diatolo. He's known as the mystery man here at WOR since he seems to spend almost all of his time going to bad musicals on Broadway. He has been known to listen to the radio once every other Easter. He last listened to it in 1959 and has not recovered since. Uh, next to him is good old friendly, bluff-hardy, jovial Marty Monroe. Marty Monroe is known as our chief lunchman here at WOR. He's the greatest lunchgoer in the history of radio. Uh, next to him, we see, uh, who is that unknown figure there? Bob Tolchin is the bright young man of, of WOR sales staff. He's been broken, though, and now he spends most of his time just running back and forth between the water cooler and the mailing room. Back and forth he goes. He once made a sale. Bring him up. Exciting thing to see the sales department in action. But who is that man sitting way down at the end of the table there? That unknown new salesman. Who is he? Yes, he has kept his mouth shut. Who is this poor, sad little creature with the curly hair? This quiet man waiting for his turn to speak. Jacques Birbin now stands. He addresses the group. 
Well, we are, he's French. We are about to issue new accounts today, man. All right, pick it up. And then suddenly, the little man, that's cut it, cut it down. The little man down at the end of the table gets up. After Jacques has said, we would like to have you meet Lefty. He is our new salesman. Lefty, would you stand up and say hello to the boys? This is Bob Alden over here, Jean Diatolo over here, and over here we have uh, uh, Robert Torchin. Uh, he is our salesman. Now, uh, would you please, Lefty, uh, speak to the boys? Lefty gets up and stands for a brief instant, silently, looking the gang over. And then, without so much as a flicker of the eyelash, he reaches under his coat and pulls out a seven-pound Roscoe, which he slowly moves from left to right and then from right to left. All right, you guys. Hey, you. The little skinny guy with a hat on. What's your name? Alton? All right, Alton. What accounts you got? You got Pujol? At my account. Ah, uh, you, you, the fat guy over there, the guy there with the funny... Yeah, you funny, yeah, funny face, you. What's your name? Monroe? You say you got pork sausage? Pork sausage is my account, smart guy. And you, Tolchin, you, you're the guy that... Yeah, the kid over there, Tolchin, I got all your accounts. I don't care what they are, all your accounts. You work for me. From here on in, you carry my briefcase. And you, what's your name, Frenchie? What? What is it? There? What is the name now? Beerman? What kind of a name is that? Frenchy name? All right, Beerman. What's your job? Sales manager? I am sales manager as of now. Any objections? Anybody want to sign it in? Nothing, huh? Who's who's running this outfit? You said there's a guy named Lita? Get him in here! Get him in here! Go on, Frenchy. Get him in here. All right, sit down there, Baldy. What's your name? Lena? All right, Lena. From here on in, you're looking at him. I'm the leader here. What do you mean, you... Take... What? You want to fight? All right, Mac. Boom, pow, kung, thunk. All right, men. As of this minute now, we got a new regime here. And the first thing I want to hear, I want to hear one of them pox sausage commercials. Put it on, man, quick. Quick. They don't make Scrapple like they used to. Have you tasted Park Scrapple? Listen, when I was a boy in Gettysburg, PA, my mother went to market every week. Bought Scrapple right from the farmer's wife who made it. Yeah, well, Parks, the famous flavor sausage people, make Scrapple... Listen, get... one week she'd buy from a farmer who put a little extra meat in, see? Next week she'd take from a farm with not quite so much meat, but a freer hand with a seasoning. Yeah, I got news for you. By then, we wanted Scrapple that cooked rich, gold, and brown. And that's the third kind of Scrapple, see? Then once a month she'd send my father over to the next county for Scrapple that didn't crumble up. Didn't taste good, but with Scrapple, you give a little, you get a little. Not anymore. You want a meaty, spicy Scrapple that cooks golden brown and doesn't crumble? There ain't any such thing. Yes, there is, and the name of it is Parks, P-A-R-K-S. Parks Scrapple is everything you want, believe me. If that's true... Yes? Then they don't make Scrapple like they used to when I was a boy in Gettysburg, P.A. And am I glad you told me. Yeah, kill that commercial. It's a rotten commercial. Ain't gonna push Lefty around. Nobody likes Scrapple. Ah, yeah. Scrapple. Speaking of Scrapple, you're talking to a Scrappler here, boy. I don't mess around with none of them. What station is this? W-O-R? 
New York! W.R., what kind of a call letter is that? I got my ideas for a real call letter. W.O.R., listen, that's a bad wine. Yeah. Here's unusual news about an unusual motion picture. It's called Nobody Waved Goodbye, and here at last is a real down-to-earth dramatic film that shows what teenagers feel and never tell, what parents see and never understand. A story of what's happening all over America, the story of privileged children, their desperate parents, and the stone wall between them. What's happening on the screen is happening in Darien, Great Neck, the Bronx. It's what's turning 10 million homes into battlegrounds. Today's children seem to be growing up so fast, marrying fast, and falling apart fast. Their confused parents ask, why? And the confused teenagers ask, why not? The name of this powerful picture is Nobody Waved Goodbye. And no parent, no teenager, nobody should miss it. On the same bill is Paul Anka in Lonely Boy, a fascinating featurette that looks deep into the life of a teenage idol. See Nobody Waved Goodbye plus Lonely Boy. It's now playing the Lowe's Capitol and Murray Hill Theater. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I think in the, in the world of the nice guy, one tough guy can take over. I really can uh, one one tough guy can take because nobody wants to you know nobody wants to hit anybody in the mouth. Uh, have you noticed? Have you noticed out in uh, in for example out in, out in Long Island, Queens, and places like that, one tough guy in a neighborhood can you recently you remember in the, in the newspapers one tough guy in the neighborhood can stab a woman or chase her up and down the streets for like two hours and nobody says anything. It's part of the nice guy thing. Nobody wants to really get involved, you know. They don't want to take anybody on. They don't want to do anything. They just sit. And I'm sure that if you, if, if Lefty walked in here at the WOI in a sales meeting, in 10 minutes, he would have all the accounts. And in 15 minutes, he'd liable to be running the place. You know, uh, I remember uh, one time sitting with a guy who had risen to the top, a, a friend of mine who who started out as a, as a little nothing operator in the mailroom of a radio station, and at last reports, this guy was in charge of television for a nationwide film organization of fantastic power. He's one of the, one of the seven or eight most powerful guys in the whole television industry, Don. Fascinating guy, and, and I remember starting with him, and he was working in the mailroom, you know, flubbing around a little radio station out in the Midwest, and, and, and I, I just ran into him here a couple of days ago, and uh, I, I uh, we had a drink with him, and I said, Joe, you know, you really have gone, you really have gone to the top. And, and I said, you know, let's face it, Joe, you don't know nothing. <laughs> you know, you really don't, you know. He doesn't know anything about production. He's never, he's never been an, a writer or actor, any producer, anything. Now he is telling the top producers where to head in. They work for him. You know, when you see Charlie Brown, it says on there, who do you think puts it on? Who do you think is the guy that gave Charlie Brown the dough? My buddy. And so I said to him, well, gee whiz, Joe, you really, holy smokes, you know, he owns half of, uh, Darien now, you know, and he owns about uh, seven-tenths of Westchester County. He owns an island off the coast of Maine, and he owns an island off the coast of Corsica. He owns half of California and all that stuff. And Oh, he's really in, you know. And I said, Joe, for crying out loud. And Joe just sort of sits there and looks and grins. I said, Joe, what is it? What is it, Joe? Come on, come on, Joe, tell me, tell me. He said, well, I'll tell you, Shep. One secret, in case you're really interested. He says, at least 
999,999 people out of a million have absolutely no ideas about anything. Nothing. And he said, and the other guy, that one guy out of a million, he doesn't have any ideas at all, either. But the difference between him and all the rest of them is that he doesn't let anybody know it. And he says, and furthermore, he's decisive. He says, let me tell you, if you got up in the middle of Times Square and, and started a holler, all right, all right, all guys, line up, here we go, we're marching, and marching right into the river, they'd go. He says, because you're the only one in the crowd that seems to have a definite plan. <laughs> he says, so, he says, my secret, he says, I've never come up with a good idea that I know of. He says, but I'm decisive. So when they bring me a paper, I say, it's rotten. I throw it out. Or they bring me another paper, and I say, great, great, put it on. And he said, everyone seems to think I'm, I'm, I'm magic. He says, I am merely decisive. Well, uh, this, this is a, this is a very, very uh, scary thing to run into, you know. Uh, uh, have you often wondered why uh, so many networks or so many big things are giant failures? You wonder. You wonder, for example, uh, a Broadway show came into town here a couple of weeks back, a couple of months ago, actually. And this thing cost $690,000. $690,000. Just think what you could do with that. That's, that's almost three quarters of a million dollars. It lasted one, counted, one D-A-Y, one. That is probably, per hour, per minute, the greatest financial fiasco in the history of the Western world, this side of World War II. There it is. And, and uh, I happen to know the guy that got it on. Does he know anything about the theater? Well, obviously. <laughs> what a turkey. Uh, does he have any taste? Woo, you should have seen the show. What has he got? He has the ability to line up a lot of people and holler, All right, give me your dough. We're putting on the show. I'm in charge. Hand the dough over here. Come on now. Sign up here. we got a great show going. And they hand it over. He didn't lose his own money. He never. Are you kidding? Uh, heaven's sakes. He's decisive. And two weeks from now, he'll have another one out. And a year from now, he'll have another one out. And who is going to give him the dough? The same people. Because he still is dynamic. Now, uh, when the, when they, well, of course, when, when, when the fiasco happens, the, the dynamic guy never takes, never takes credit for fiascos. Absolutely not. I told you, I fought all the way down the line that we should have called in Bill Inch. We should have called Bill Inch into Boston. I told all you guys. Now you're going to learn? I know what I'm talking about. Never once did somebody say, yeah, but this whole rotten show was your idea, Charlie. Holy smokes, you let us all over the cliff. He's, now the next time we put on a show, you're going to listen to me, right? Bill Inge comes to Boston, rewrites the second act. I told you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. Come on. Andy up. I've got another book here. Just got it in the mail. We're all set to get going. All right. Now, come on. Here. Come on. Come on, Fred. Give me the dough. Come on. You. $100,000 from you. 200000 from you. And we are going to be in New Haven by next week. The reason I wanted to drive this fact home. <laughs> now, 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 let me tell you something about that. That business of being, of being, of being absolutely rotten. Before we do that, let's get on with a couple of commercials. Well, let's see. We have a little commercial here. And uh, it's about uh, insurance, and in, in fact, this case, it's about income insurance. And as you all know, that 
that problem is always there. If you get sick or ill or have some kind of an accident, you're liable to find yourself without dollar bills coming in, and yet the old bills keep piling up. So before sickness or accident robs you of income, should you become disabled, find out from First National Health Agency of Newark, New Jersey, how you can qualify for Continental Casualty Company's new and unusual income protection. It's a plan that pays from $50 to $100 a week, tax-free, from the first day, and as long as you're disabled, even if it's for life. So you can find out, for free information, no obligation, from First National, call Judson 61600 in New York. That's Judson 61600 in New York. Call them right now if you want. Or if it's in Jersey, Mitchell 33322. Mitchell 33322. Here's Ralph Harris for McLean's. It's McLean's, the toothpaste that cleans with a new kind of taste that's wild. Yeah, 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 what a taste, what a zing. When you smile, all the bells will ring. Get them white, start tonight with McLean's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, isn't it time to swing a new toothpaste that gets teeth irresistibly white? McLean's has a taste that's so lively, so dazzling, that you can actually feel it whitening. Your whole mouth feels refreshed and invigorated. Come on now, you try new McLean's. You'll dig it. It's McLean's, the toothpaste that cleans with a new kind of taste that's wild. Yeah, 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 what a taste, what a zing. <laughs> when you smile, all the bells will ring. Get them wiped, start tonight with McLean's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You still using that sweet kid stuff? Okay. You know, uh, it's a funny thing about uh, about people with... You know, there's a lot of words for it, uh, what that is called. You know, one of the most common phrases, of course, is simply brass. Uh, there are other words. There are a lot of other words. <laughs> and, and certain guys, you know, grow up... I think it's a thing you grow up with in your family. There are certain families, just by the nature of their attitude around the house, uh, for no reason, for no given reason, no, no real reason, absolutely feel that they are the best people in the neighborhood. They do. Uh, they often feel, yeah, the, 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 there's a lot of words. Chutzpah. There are other words. I'm not quite sure of the pronunciation, but I know the word. Uh, there are a lot of words that describe this phenomenon. But I think... Many people come out of families where the family itself really does believe that it's a it's a kind of a God given family that they're 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 better people. Now that doesn't mean they're richer. That doesn't mean they're more successful. But they're intrinsically better. And I have known many performers. And I'm curious to know uh, how much of this B R A S brass. How much of this is confused in the public mind? want. Many people really do believe that just because a guy is on a stage, uh, just because a guy is on a television show, or a woman is very loud, uh, or she's very, very sure of herself, absolutely, totally, dynamically sure of themselves, that that is talent. I have, you know where you see a great uh, collection of these people every night? Have you ever watched the late night television shows? This is the repository for the untalented brassy. There are at least five women who are continually on the uh, Johnny Carson show who have absolutely no discernible talent except they're loud. And their very loudness 
And their very uh, obnoxiousness is called talent. And people love to sit back and watch an obnoxious, loud lady yell at other people. <laughs> you know, they love this, as long as they're not yelling at them, you know. And so they're like, what do you mean? It's like, what do you mean? What is that? What is that? A banana you're eating or is that your nose? You know, that kind of stuff. The, the, uh, you might say the Selma Diamond Syndrome, you know. And, <laughs> and people say, oh, wow, tell it. Wow, 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 fantastic. Well, now, uh, I, have, I have been around show business enough. I've been in musicals. I've, do, I've done at least five reviews here in town. Uh, I've been in several straight dramatic things. I've done a lot of TV shows. And I have been around many people in the theater and in show business, successful people, and I have found that the number of truly talented people is almost, almost non-existent. It's such a minute number of people that it, it, uh, it rarely, it rarely has anything, uh, it, it, you can watch a whole week of television, for example. I, I'll guarantee, that, uh, from my standpoint anyway, I may be wrong, but you, I, I have watched a week of television and not seen one person that I would call talented. Now there are some people, there are some facile people. There are certainly a lot of uh, brassy people. I wish I could use some of the great words. That really, <laughs> really, many of them start with B, by the way. Uh, I, I, uh, I've seen a lot of people, but rarely a talented person. Talent is rare. You know, talent is always in rare. Uh, talent is rare in writing. Uh, talent is extremely rare in the performing arts. Uh, talent is rare in music. It's a very rare thing. And so today, since we have mediums now that use up uh, performers at a fantastic rate, uh, after all, how many hours of television is on a day on the average network? And it must be on 15 hours a day. Uh, that, that the number of people who are talented is minute compared to the number of people who are on. And so eventually, the talented get swept away. They have to. They're outnumbered. Because just like the lemmings <laughs> and, and like, uh, like other various uh, aggressive groups, you'll find that the untalented protect each other. And they will promote each other uh, because they don't look upon each other as competition. And so you get seven untalented guys, and they are going to help and aid and abet each other because they're all on the same racket. You know, it's like the mafia or something. They're all on the same racket. They want to keep it. They want to keep it going. You know, after all, uh, I mean, if you blow the whistle on Charlie, who's untalented, he'll turn around and blow the whistle on you. So the next thing you know, everybody's patting everybody's back. The one guy who's in trouble is on one, uh, on Monday morning if they hire a talented one. Look out, because all seven of the others are going to be arrayed against him. Because he's literally the danger. He is actually, he, he's, he's the, the uh, snake in the bosom. Uh, <laughs> he really is. Uh, I, I saw this work one time, I'll never forget, a little object lesson that I had once, uh, fact, that there was a famous comedy show on. And they, uh, all comedy shows, every big show like, uh, oh, uh, the Johnny Carson show, all these nighttime shows, uh, the big shows that, that appear, the Sid Caesar show, and so on, they always have a giant staff of writers. Now, that doesn't mean a writer. That means a staff of writers. They may have seven or eight guys sitting around, and they have story conferences, and they'll have, they'll have program conferences all throughout the week. And these guys ostensibly are there for the idea of giving good lines for the staff to read. Uh, or to say, or situations for him to do and to read and to perform and so on. 
Well, this uh, this uh, this is okay, you see, uh, as long as as nobody rocks the boat. And week after week, as long as their rating is okay, uh, seven guys sitting there reading jokes out of the Joe Miller joke book can get by. Well, I happen to have been involved very lightly with one of these shows uh, about six or seven years ago. And a snake got into the nest. A truly talented, funny writer who went on, by the way, to become a successful playwright who also wrote a successful novel and later, uh, you know, left that whole schlemu behind. But this guy was an extremely, truly talented, funny man. Well, at first, nobody said anything about it. They didn't know that he was really a, a, an evil one. They did not know that he was one of the dangerous ones. And for the first couple of weeks, he, he sat back there because he didn't say much. He was afraid. He was a little worried about opening his trap, and it was his first job in a long time, and he wanted to keep his mouth shut and, and see how it worked. And for about the first two weeks, they loved him. And then one day, uh, one of the boys came in. He says, look. He says, all right, now look, look, all right, boys, I got a great idea, see? All right, we take, we take the star, see? All right, now you know, oh, you know he can't read a line, okay. We take the star, we put him on a fence, see? Along comes this chick, all right, you got the scene? She sits down next to him, and the next thing you know, she turns to him and says, blah, 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 and he turns to her and says, wow, 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 what a walk, what a yak. All right, now, you see, the whole scene is, she's trying to pick him up. You got it there? It's a twist. She's trying to pick him up, and here he is in the park all the time, and he's trying to, you know, he's just looking at the girls. Next thing you know, the girl's trying to pick him. The next thing that comes along is the cop. All right, you're with McManian. See, Manny plays the cop. He comes along, he says, all right, Mac, nobody's going to pick up chicks on my beat. And with that, he belts him over the head. The guy's confused. The chick gets up and says, nobody's going to hit my boyfriend. Hits the cop. And all. Oh, it's a fantastic yacht. Well, my friend sat there for a second. He says, oh, boy. Holy smokes. And everybody, all six of the other guys are falling on the floor and hitting each other and yelling, you see, because there's a, there's a tacit agreement among all of them that <laughs> whenever any of them brings in a bit, Don, they all laugh at it, you see. Because if you laugh at my bit, I'll laugh at yours. It's you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Well, he sat there for a minute, you know, he thought they were all trying to do a good show. He did not know that their whole object was to keep their jobs. So he sat there for me. he says, oh, that's terrible. And he said there was a long pregnant pause. And he didn't know, and you know, he wasn't trying to be smart. He said, oh, that's not, that's not very good, fellas. You know, gee whiz, wow. I'll tell you how we can make that funny. And he proceeded to outline a fantastically funny comedy sketch on the original basic idea. So much so that the five guys who were sitting there, who were very mad at him for, for saying what he did, had to laugh. They just ought to, he, he got his audience, and others they were laughing. <laughs> well, they're all laughing and yocking it up. And, uh, uh, so then the, 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 he said, well, let's, let's submit it to Sid or Fred or whatever the name of the comic was. Let's submit it to him. Well, there was a kind of a long pregnant pause, and one of them said, well, after all, that was, uh, that was Harry's idea, you know, Harry. He said, well, go ahead, give it to him, Harry. And there was another long pregnant pause, and Harry says, what do you mean? Are you a smart guy? What do you mean? That's not my idea anymore. I can't give it to him. He said, well, look, it's for the good of the show, fellas. Let's all get... Well, I can only tell you that ten days later he was out. After he had come up with seven fantastically funny ideas, that was the end of him. Kill. Now, uh, <laughs> this sounds this sounds like a direct reversal of what most people learn in school. You know, that the thing to do is to be the most creative guy. The thing to do is to come up with the best ideas. 
the thing to do is to have the most original conceptions. Whereas you'll find that in most businesses, and particularly in the theater, oh boy, it's, it's really in the theater, it's even worse than it is outside, that the guy with the original conception is often considered the kook. He's considered a kook. He's considered way out. Uh, not only is he considered way out, he is also tacitly considered a man who has blasted the life that these other guys have created for them. You know, it's, a, it's kind of a rebuilding, uh, uh, reverberating, uh, endlessly recreating thing. And so, uh, in the end, you'll find that mediocrity produces mediocrity. And it not only produces it, it protects mediocrity. Very much so. Uh, I have come to believe that the critics in general, I'm talking about critics here, the, what we call critics in the newspapers, which really are not critics at all, they're reviewers. The difference between a critic and a reviewer is a critical point. We call them critics here, but they're really not. They're reviewers. Uh, they're like uh, consumer research testers. Uh, the, the, the average critic in America or reviewer in America really, in a sense, is like the policeman who guards against creativity. He guards against offending the audience by a new thought. Uh, do you know that there is a wonderful word? We, we all know the word uh, xenophobia, which is the fear of color. This is a common word. Uh, xenophobia is not only the fear of color, it's the fear of another race. It's the fear of something different. Do you know that there's a great word that refers to the fear of ideas? That is a distinct and recognizable human uh, neuroses. There is a fear of ideas. And what is the word? It's, uh, gee, it starts with an M. It's very rarely used. It's a word that is something like monologist. It's uh, monogenist. Monogenist. It's a word quite similar. Any of you who know that word, it's a great word. It refers to the fear of ideas. And just like xenophobia, it's a catching disease. Uh, xenophobia can, can rage through a society to the point where you get to be like Nazi Germany. This is a, this is a wild, virulent form of xenophobia. This same disease or the fear of an idea can go through a society with the same kind of virulence of a plague of botulism. So wild, what is the word? Doggone it. Uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. I don't think I've used it twice in my life. M-O-N mono meaning single mon it's not monogenist it's oh shucks now there it's there it's, it, it, it's disappeared but there is such a word referring to the fear of ideas and this this is a common problem now an idea is is often uh, looked upon as dangerous what is this thing uh, this is the rotten new world coming in it can, it can be a thousand different uh, attitudes this is rampant in many southern cities right now. A new idea referring to a new way to treat a human being. And this is looked upon uh, as, as, a, as a subversive thing. Uh, it's, it's a very bad thing. You'll find many extreme conservatives are afflicted with this problem. Uh, they don't recognize it as an affliction. It's generally, they think of it usually as a, a protector of uh, of the good things, a protector of the of the way life should be, referring, of course, to protecting the system that has produced 
my great my great scene here that I've got. You know, I'm rich, I'm famous, or I've made it, I'm happy, I've got the... Uh, and so I will protect at all odds this thing that's uh, changing it. Uh, do we have any commercials in there? Oh, would you please hit the thing there? Yeah, hit it down. There it goes. There. Miller High Life in Pop and Pork Ends. Distinctive Miller Highlight in pop and pour cans. Just pop and pour Miller Highlight, the champagne of bottled beer. No opener needed. And inside every can, enjoy the hearty yet light goodness of Miller Highlight, brewed from a century old recipe, only in Milwaukee. Miller Highlight always gives you that perfect taste in beer every time. Always a bright, clear taste. Unequaled, unquestioned, unchanging. Now you can enjoy refreshing Miller High Life in Pop and Pour cans. Pop and Pour Miller High Life. Always sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Now in Pop and Pour cans. After you've gone, you left me crying. After you've gone, I still... I can't help uh, but remember the guy with the exploding cigar. I can't help but uh, remember the guy... (laughs) You know, uh, I'll I'll never forget... uh, Gee whiz, that reminds me. Do you remember when when it was considered a very funny thing, when when a real big funny bit was the idea of putting one of these whistle bombs on guys' uh, ignition in their car guy would come out and he'd turn the car on, you know, and he'd sit there for a minute in the car. And then all of a sudden, you remember that? He'd hear, coming from under the hood, and then boom, and a lot of smoke would fly. Do you remember that bit? Well, uh, I saw a thing. Uh, Gee, was I'm surprised, I'm not only surprised, but irritated myself. I didn't think of this earlier. But I'll tell you a story. If you'll remind me to tell it, I'll tell you the story of one of the funniest things I ever saw in my whole Army career that was involved with one of these whistle bombs and two and a half million dollars worth of very high-powered radar equipment. <laughs> and, and, and you remind me to, to tell that story. Uh, I'll, uh, you just remind me. Now, now you know, uh, the, the, uh, I'm curious about that side of man. I'm wondering about that side of us, that strange little appetite that we have, to see other people discomforted. Uh, do you know that the, that the practical joke is found in all societies? They even find this in the, in the uh, Stone Age societies of equatorial Africa, that there is, there is the equivalent of the exploding cigar, Don. There is the equivalent of the whoopee cushion. There is, there is, there is the equivalent of every last, you know, the, the little, the little plastic thing that looks like the dog has stayed just a little bit too long under the coffee table. This scene, uh, I'm curious about that strange little appetite. And I wonder whether or not there have been giant wars that have been perpetrated as a kind of enormous practical joke on the others. I wonder about, wonder about a war or a whole political philosophy or a whole art form that started out as a practical joke and later became taken seriously and the next thing you know it changed history entirely and that guy is still out there somewhere get right at this minute i'll guarantee you somebody is preparing to light a cigar right at this minute and in 10 seconds 
by the time the theme ends, that cigar will have exploded. His glasses will have clouded over, and man, once again, is biting the backside of man. Thank you.